from this point on, chapter 7 on, the book of Daniel deals with visions that Daniel had. So this is the last, uh, as it, this is the last narrative, the last chapter of stories, and they parallel one another. If you look at them, they parallel one another very closely. Um, you have uh, <clears throat> in chapter one Daniel being singled out as somebody who is worthy of leading the leading uh, the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. In chapter 2, you have king with dream. Chapter 3, you have um, the king being humbled. Uh, no, you, chapter 3, you have the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being put in, in fire, um, and they're, they're spared from that. Uh, here you have Daniel being put into a lion's den, being spared from that. Uh, then chapter 4, you have the humbling of a king. Chapter 5, you have the humbling of a king. So you'll notice that there's, there's parallels there, and it forms uh, somewhat of a chiasm, uh, though some might disagree with that. Um, before we uh, consider Daniel chapter um, 6 this morning, let's uh, pray. Gracious Father, deal bountifully with your servants that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Daniel teaches us that when we're faced with the choice to obey God or man, we must obey God knowing that whether we live or die, we really are the Lord's. That's what Paul believed and that's what we believe. Daniel faced the trial of obedience and he faced it just like you and I do. He was, in one sense, we look at him and say, oh, wow, what a servant of God. That's true. But he was what he was because of the grace of God, not because of anything inherent in Daniel. Well, would he obey God or would he obey man? The decision was not easily, but it was confidently made. To obey is better than sacrifice. Compromise was unacceptable to Daniel. Daniel would, would obey God, even if it did cost him his life. Now, the chapters you've been looking at, looking at are telling us stories. And you can, look at, you can, you can go through the chapters in uh, different ways. And, uh, um, but I want you to notice this morning how the story is set forth. Every story has a plot, okay? And the plot has a setting. And we see that setting in the first verses, chapter one, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. That's the setting that tells you what's, where you're at. Then every story has a conflict. And that conflict is, is set before us in chapter 6, verse 6, all the way through chapter 6, verse 15. And the, the, the conflict comes to a climax. And so that climax is in chapter 6, verse 16, through verse 24. And then there's a resolution, chapter 6, verse 25, through 27. And then you have a new setting, chapter 6, verse 28. Now that's how a story goes. And so I want us this morning to think about the story 
that's here because it will help us to understand how uh, how Daniel six means what it means. It doesn't. It's not. Uh, some uh, oftentimes we think about well, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, we need to try to understand how it means before we can gra- grapple with what it means. So let's think about this. Let's look at the uh, the what's called the setting. The setting in this in the first five verses, we notice that Daniel is set over the kingdom. Um, it was ple- it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Okay? Then Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was found in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So that's the setting. And you can see what the problem is, can't you? The high officials are offended. And they want to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They were jealous. That's what they were. Daniel distinguished himself. The world, folks, that God created was good. And it's still good. But it's broken. So Daniel excels in his service to the king, whether the king was of Babylon or of Persia. And it's not until the law of man conflicts with the law of God that Daniel must make a choice. Now Sinclair Ferguson uh, states that just like philosophy is called a footnote, on all, all, all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, So the entire scripture is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. And what's Genesis 3.15? Well, Genesis 3.15 is the promise that there would be a seed born to the woman who would bruise or crush or kill, destroy the serpent's works. And that promise is reiterated in Genesis chapter 5 when Noah thought, or when Noah's father thought that he might be the one who would relieve them of uh, the toil of the ground which God had cursed. Well, what this means is that everything in Scripture is the odd working of God's promise that the seed of woman would destroy the head of the serpent and that the kingdom of God will destroy the kingdom of darkness. And so it's like Augustine said, we live in two cities. We live in the city of God, but we also live in the city of man. And it makes it difficult at times, but not all the time. Notice, Daniel was not anybody special, right? Outside of the book of Daniel and the book of Ezekiel, you don't even know who Daniel is. He's not a famous missionary like Paul was. He wasn't a martyr like Paul and, and, uh, and James. They were, they were martyrs. Uh, Peter was a martyr. you know. And, but, but Daniel wasn't anything like that. Daniel was a normal person like you. And he was working at a normal job just like most of you. And the only thing that distinguished him was the fact that he did his job well. 
He was excellent in his job. He didn't cheat. He didn't lie. He didn't, um, he didn't try to, you know, uh, get extra money when he shouldn't. In fact, what he did was, what, what, the, what, the, te- what the text tells us, is that <clears throat> he uh, was a person who excelled in the affairs of keeping the king's the king from lo- suffering loss. And in that sense, you know what he was? He, was an ex- he is to us, and he was to the people of his day, an example of Jeremiah chapter 1, chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. So I want you to turn back there. We, uh, I think we're going to get there. We haven't yet in our study in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. Now the people of Israel are in exile. They're in Babylon. And so the word of the Lord uh, came to Jeremiah and he wrote a letter. And these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, of Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Well, that's what Daniel did. At this point in Daniel's life, he's somewhere in his late... The 70 years have already passed, so he's either in his late 70s or maybe in his mid-80s. That's how old he is. And um, what you notice about him is that he's a consistent individual. He worked hard to excel when he was under Nebuchadnezzar, and he worked hard to excel when he was under Darius or Cyrus. But make no mistake, the kingdom of darkness is a real kingdom. And we are caught up in a real war. This is not a Lord of the Rings kind of war or any other kind of mythological war. This war is real. 
And you're fighting it today from your time you're a child until you're an old man like me. We do not get to choose to not be caught up in the warfare. We either stand with and for Christ or we stand with and for the kingdom of darkness. Now, Daniel knew that. So, he continued his work and the people that didn't like him, they were conniving, they were deceptive, and so they said in verse 5, we, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. That's what they had to find. How, is, how can we trip him up in relationship to the law of his God because we're not going to be able to get him for the kind of work he does. So when you go to work, do the best you can. Excel in it. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you'll get advanced. Do a good job. Do the best you can. Do it for your employer. But more than that, do it for the glory of God. Yes. Because as as long as you are faithful to God, you're glorifying Him. It doesn't matter what the job is. You could be an artist who's going to have a show this week, or you could be someone like my daughter who writes and gets paid for that online, or you could be uh, like Jennifer who takes care of her neighbors, or. It doesn't matter what you are. You could be a, a technician. Uh, what do they call that? Um, IT guy. You can be that. Just You can be the dean of a school. It doesn't matter what it is. Just do it for the, for the praise of God's glory. Do the best you can. And when people have to bring something against you, don't let it be because you failed at your job. Let it be because of your relationship with God. That's what you need to do. And what you need to understand is that the kingdom of darkness is, has always been, since the garden, able to twist the truth of God. It's able to twist the truth of God into a lie. And one way they do that, first of all, is by reinterpretation. The kingdom of darkness is good at reinterpreting the word of God to make God out to be a liar or unfair. That's what the serpent did in the garden and that's what he does now. Second, they use the word of God in contrast to the word of man. And that's what, that's what was happening with these satraps. They knew they couldn't find fault with Daniel unless they could construe a way whereby God's word would conflict with a state-ordered policy. Now I want to tell you, both of those are occurring right now in our lifetime. Right now, there are books of books on queer hermeneutics. If you don't believe me, look it up online. Go to Amazon. There's queer interpretation, feminist interpretation, liberation interpretation, post-colonial hermeneutics. In fact, I even think I have that book on post-colonial hermeneutics. All of them reinterpret what the Bible says and argue for a different meaning. How do they do that? By twisting words. Another way that it's happening now is through the Equality Act. 
Next week, the U.S. of House, House of Representatives is scheduled to vote on the Radical Equality Act, and the bill would amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Fair Housing Act to prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. Now that's what the bill is. Under Obama, there was a protection, a protection for the churches. But as the, and I'm quoting here, as the Alliance Defending Freedom notes, this legislation could be used to restrict the religious freedom of churches and religious nonprofits, including religious schools, set, set back protections for women in athletics, at work, and in private spaces like showers and locker rooms, and inhibit the ability of everyday Americans to live in accord with their beliefs. What is that doing? It's crossing a line and saying, this is what the law of man says. We do not care what the law of God says. Do you want your daughters taking a shower with biological males? Because that's where you're headed, folks. Western culture is going down the drain. We've been being warned about this over and over again by authors going back 40 years. But nothing's changed. We're on a downgrade. Well, I'm telling you, they're looking for a way to... They're going to cross a line where we will have to, like the apostles, like Paul, like Daniel, say... It's we must obey God rather than man. And so what's going to happen? Well, we'll see. That leads us then to the conflict that's coming up in this story. These commissioners, because they knew that, uh, came by agreement to the king and spoke to him. What did they say? Well, they said, King Darius, live forever. These are his great supporters. Yeah, yeah they, really care. they really care about great. They really care about Darius. Live forever. All, notice that, all the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute. Let's stop right there for a moment. What, what is this all about prefects and satraps and high officials and governors? Well, when Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire, they turned it. They they, recon, they reconstructed the the political system. They were they were decentralizing government. So instead of having everything in Babylon, they set up governors over 120 different uh, count, like you might call them counties or 100 and different 120 different areas. And then over them there are three men who oversee those 120, yeah. those 120 governors you might call them. And then there's going to be one guy that's over those three, and it's going to be Daniel. Oh, they don't like that. No, 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 no. We can't have that. So, all, underscore, bold, all, put in italics, all the, all the governors of the kingdom came to the king. Now we know what about that. It's a bold-faced lie because Daniel wasn't there. Daniel didn't agree with this. I doubt that they told him that they were going. In fact, not all 120 went there. 
I, only, I think it was only the, the three guys. I don't think all 100. They couldn't have because they were all over the kingdom. They were, they were spread out all over. So only these three officials were really the ones. These are the culprits. And, you know, they, they, they just said, you know, all of us have done this. Well, not, not Daniel. They didn't consult him. They want the king to establish a statute and enforce an injunction. That is, they want him to make an executive order. That's what it is, an executive order. That anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, I want you to notice this. No, No one can make a petition to any god or man for 30 days. Doesn't tell us why it's 30 days, but it's obvious, isn't it? These guys know that before 30 days are up, yes. they got Daniel by the throat. Mm-hmm. And so they make this, they construct this, this executive order, and did King Darius or Cyrus really think about it? No. You know, he might not have thought about it at all. Mm-hmm. He might have just said, well, you know, they want everybody to support me. That's okay. You know, bam, I'll put my seal on and it's done. So the king um, agreed to it. And they remind the king, this, this, this executive order cannot be revoked. You've established it. You cannot revoke it. Verse 8. So he sealed it. And then what happens? Well, when Daniel, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, what did he do? Daniel did what he's always done. Yes. You know, Daniel was a young man when he went to when he went to uh, Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. He may have been 16 years old. Some people think he might have been younger. He might have been 13. He was a young boy. But what had Daniel done since the very first time we encounter him in chapter 1? They don't, he doesn't want to eat the food. He wasn't, doesn't want to defile himself. So what does he do? He goes to his friends, and what do they do? They pray. Whenever there's anything that comes up in Daniel's life, he prays. So from the time he's, the, time, the youngest point in his life that we see him, He's a man who prays. And now in his older life, he's a man who prays. And so when the document was signed, he entered his house. Then you have this parenthetical statement. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. Do you think these guys that concocted this knew that Daniel had that? Oh yeah, they knew. They knew exactly where Daniel was going to go. They had this all figured out. So he went to his room, and what did he do? He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Notice, he's praying and he's giving thanks. This was his habit. And what else was his habit? Well, they... uh, the other habit is that we see uh, that Daniel is asking for help. 
Daniel is praying during a time of great temptation. And it was his habit from the time he was young until he's old. So I ask you, young people, yeah, you, you teenagers, you who aren't a teenager yet, what's your habit? Do you have a habit of praying to God every day? Daniel had this like sanctuary on his, on his roof, right? And I'm not saying you have to have a sanctuary on your roof, but he had a sanctuary on his roof with the windows open to Jerusalem. Because that, that's what he was supposed to do. That's what, when, when Solomon built the temple, you remember? If our people go into exile and they sin against you, then when they pray toward this temple, you will hear them. So Daniel's keeping his life in line with the scripture, God's revelation. And so, that's his habit. He has a sanctuary where he goes three times a day to pray. Um, I want to encourage you, children, young people, teenager, make a sanctuary in your heart, okay, that you go to every day, whether you feel like it or not. In fact, adults should do this. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you're tired or not, whether it interferes with something you want to do, doesn't matter. Don't let anything get in the way of you entering that sanctuary in your heart, your inner closet, and praying. You know, you don't have to pray for a long time. I mean, Jesus told us, guys, Jesus told us, you know, when you, when you pray, don't pile up words, you know, you, you sound like, it sounds like blah, 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 blah. Don't do that. Rather, do this. Our Father who art in heaven, can you pray that? Can you pray that every day? Our Father who art in heaven, does it take long? No, that's what. Not even a minute long. Could you do that? The question is, will you do that? Because if you don't start it, if you're not doing it, and you don't start it now, you won't do it when you get older. Unless God is gracious to you, you won't do it later. I know, because I'm an old man, and I'm telling you the truth. I'm not a good reader. You want to know why? Because I never started reading very much, even when I was eight years old, I really didn't read well. And so when I became a teenager, I didn't read well. When I became an adult, I didn't read well. And to this day, I struggle with reading. You know why? Because by the time I was eight, I hadn't developed the ability and the discipline to sit down and read. Well, I'm telling you this, if you don't develop the discipline of praying every day, I'm not telling you it has to be three times, but what I am doing, telling you is this. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And it, le- it means at least this, do it regularly every day. If you don't do that now, you won't do it later. And then the crisis will come, you see. The climax will come in your life, or the, or the crisis will, the conflict will come in your life. When people are beginning to manipulate you, and then what are you going to do? Well, what will you do? Life is a challenge, young people. It's a challenge to me too. 
I'm getting old, so I don't have long for this world. But I pray for you. I pray for Tim, and I pray for Mercy, and I pray for Emma. We pray for Emmy, uh, uh, Remy. Pray for your children, my grandchildren, great-grandchildren. They're going to have a whole mess that they have to face. Well, so these men, these three men, I believe that's all that it really was, they came uh, by agreement and found Daniel making petition. They knew where he lived, they knew what his little room was, and so they went there and they found him, and so they went to the king and they said, um, Oh, uh, king, uh, did, did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, is to be cast in the lion's den? Didn't, didn't you say that? Well, isn't that, what you, isn't that what you put your seal to? And then they dropped the bomb. Well, they even reminded him that it's according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And then they said, Daniel. Daniel! Who is, um, who's, they, you know, notice they didn't say he's one of the leaders. No. They said, that, that Daniel, you know, who, who is one of the exiles from Judah? Well, he pays no attention to you, O king or to the injunction which you signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Oh man, that broke the king. He was deeply distressed. He wanted to uh, try to figure out how to deliver Daniel, and even until sunset, he kept ex exerting himself to rescue him. He spent the whole day trying to get this done, and he couldn't do it. And then those men came by agreement to the king and said... You know, recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. There, I want you to focus on that for a minute, guys. The law of man cannot be changed, but what can you change? The law of God. The law of man is, is fixed. Or at least that's what people think. But the law of God, don't have to pay attention to it. So now we come to the climax of the story. So you see we had a setting, then we had a conflict. It's come to the point of climax now. So the king, and it's broken into several parts. First is Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. And then the king's disturbance through the night. And then the king rising up, and then you keep reading this. Read the different parts of the climax. It starts in a grave place where uh, Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, and the king is so distraught. He says, your, he tells Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that Nothing may be changed in regard to Daniel. And then the king went off and he was distraught. He, he spent the night fasting. He didn't have entertainment brought in before him. 
His, his sleep, his sleep fled from him. This bothered him. How could this? How could he have let this happen to this man that he that he had such a high opinion of? And so that you see, where the climax is starting and it's getting to this apex, and finally, then the king arises with the dawn at the break of day. You notice he gets up. He, well, he wasn't really sleep, but as soon as there was any light, he hastes to the lion's den. And he comes and he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Is your God that powerful? And Daniel spoke to him. Notice, notice Daniel's sincerity. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him, and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. And Daniel was innocent in a sense, not that he didn't ever sin or anything like that, but he was innocent in that in his life he had been faithful. And in this situation he had been faithful to God. And not only that, he had been faithful to the king. And so there was nothing to accuse him of. There was no reason to do this to him. And uh, so he was... Um, he told the king, I'm innocent. And so the king, well, he was pleased. And he gave orders to have Daniel taken out. So he was taken out of the den. And then the king dropped the bomb on the other guys. <laughs> he, through all of them, with their wives and children into the den of lions and it's described so graphically before they hit the ground the lions were chewing them up and breaking their bones and everything i mean it's, it's this this description of of what these lions did and yet god kept them at bay with um with daniel well then in the story so you have the setting you have the conflict you have the climax and then you come to a resolution and then you have a new setting. That's how a story goes. So now we're at the resolution. God is glorified in Daniel's faithfulness. So Darius wrote all the peoples and nations and everybody in every language that in all of the, the dominion of his kingdom and uh, that they are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Why? For he is the living God and enduring forever and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Look at that. What did he, he looks just like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar gave glory to God more than once. And, and Darius Sirius is doing the same thing. He's giving God glory for all of this. And that's how the story resolves. These men sought to dishonor God and it ended up where God was honored in the end. And then you have the new setting. And the new setting is the last verse. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Sirius, or that is the reign of Sirius the Persian. That's how it ends. That's the new setting. Now what happens? Does Daniel ever get to go back to Jerusalem? Probably not. He probably dies in, in Babylon because 
Well, of his age, one thing, and he's, he's in, in an important place. And so most people think that Daniel never did return to Jerusalem, but we know in his heart that that's where he wanted to be. Yeah. Well, now, as you look at this passage, you can see all kinds of connections between Daniel and Christ, can you not? Jesus was put in a, in a pit, well, sort of, with a stone rolled over it, with seals on it. Jesus, you, there were angels in Jesus' thing, right? So you make these kind of connections to Christ, and there's nothing wrong with that. Others have too. Um, the sermons I've listened to, all the, all the men make those kinds of connections with Christ. I'm making one that's a little different. I want to remind you that our Lord Jesus faced the most extreme trial when he faced the crucifixion. And it wasn't the fear of physical death that caused him pain. It was facing the death caused by sin that weighed heavy upon him. Death caused by sin is more hideous than physical death because it is a separation from God. Therefore, on the cross, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words come from Psalm 22, which depicts the crucifixion of our Lord. And the enemies of our Lord are represented as lions. They open wide their mouth at me as ravaging and ro- as a ro- as a ra- ravening and roaring lion. Psalm twenty two thirteen. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox, and thou dost answer me. Psalm twenty two verse twenty one. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken for by God for you and me. Do you believe that? Therefore, in the garden prior to his arrest, he prayed intently that the Father would let this cup pass from him. You see, Jesus would die on the tree that killed Adam. The tree that killed Adam brought death because Adam disobeyed. The tree that killed Jesus brought brought uh, death because Jesus obeyed. I want you to think for a moment. Do you think that Daniel, when he was when he was praying, do you think? That he was asking God to help him go through this, through this temptation? Do you think that? Would you be saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Will you please help me? Well, I want to encourage you. Because the writer of Hebrews depicts Christ, the, the human Christ. Now remember this. Christ is both divine and human, both at the same time. And in his human, in his human nature, he, the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember that. He's your high priest. Jesus said to the apostles, and He says to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer of Hebrews says, Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? So when you're facing, and we're going to face trials in the coming days, I'm telling you, prepare yourself. I want you to remember this. 
Jesus our Savior comes to our aid when we are tempted. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that he has in, in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted in that which he suffered. He was tempted in the garden. He was truly, really tempted. So he can help you. He can help you when you're being tempted in the trial of your faith and my faith. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice that? He can sympathize with us. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Folks, that's where we go. We go to the throne of grace and we ask for help from our Lord Jesus. Jesus saves us from sin, but he also delivers us from temptation. If he never leaves us or forsakes us, if he is, always, if he is with us always, then I ask you, do you reach out to him? Do you cry out to him, Lord, I need your help? Beloved, Jesus is no abstraction. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable Savior who loves you and gave His life for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He is your faithful High Priest. He is not remote. He is near. He is with you always, even until the end of the age. Do you believe that? Will you act upon it? Let's pray. Loving Father, may we learn from Daniel the loving you first and foremost will cost us. That cost will vary throughout life, but it may cost us our lives. May we, therefore, with Paul, develop the mindset, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In this way, we may live to, to the praise of your glory. We ask you this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Would you please turn to... Uh, hymn number um, 585, please. Hymn 585, thank you. Thank you.